Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, January 30th, 2015. See if we can bring the ship into port safely for the week. Well, we got a lot of ground to cover here. You ever feel like you've bitten off more than you can chew? Sometimes I do that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and there is literally no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to examine what God's Word says in context using sound biblical hermeneutics in order to test the messages that are being given to us by popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and the like to see if it squares with God's Word and if we're being taught sound doctrine or if we're being taught, well, the opposite of sound doctrine. So today we're going to, well, it's going to be a little bit all over the map. And what I mean by that is is that today's program is going to be quite eclectic. And uh, what we're going to be doing, in fact, no theme today, <laughs> no theme. Uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to start off with a uh, Heidi Baker update. She uh, appeared on Matt Sorger's um, television program, and I thought it'd be worth passing along uh, her interview with Matt Sorger because, well, I think uh, Heidi Baker is the perfect example of, uh, well, what's come to be known as strange fire. There's no reason to believe that what she's manifesting is actually from God the Holy Spirit. In fact, quite the contrary. But um, what she does is quite over the top, and so we, uh, we're sure to share that with you here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. Then we're going to switch to email, and we're probably going to have to break our email up into two segments. We'll do part of the segments before the uh, the break, part of the segments after the break, and then we're going to switch gears altogether, and we're going to address uh, one of these congregations. If you've uh, seen the, the Time Magazine article uh, regarding evangelicals and homosexuality and how two of them were featured grace point in uh, nashville tennessee and east lake community church out in bothell washington were both featured in the time magazine article uh, as uh, congregations that have had a radical change of thinking if you would regarding uh, what the church should be doing regarding lgbtq issues and so we're going to play for you uh pastor I think Ryan Meeks is his name, Pastor Ryan's uh, sermon that he delivered this past Sunday. Um, and I want you to listen to his arguments, and you'll kind of get the the uh, idea of what's going wrong there. And funny enough, some of our email responses today, the answers I'll give will help us uh, better frame 
how to uh, identify the false problems going on with his ideas. But uh, And then in hour number two, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons. Um, and I hate to say my sermons are good. I'll leave that up to you. Uh, we'll end the week off with no bad sermons. How's that? And uh, I'm going to uh, play for you the sermon I delivered this past Sunday where I took the uh, Gospel of Mark text uh, where Jesus, uh, after John is... Uh, arrested, you know, goes and proclaims repentance and, you know, tells the people of Israel to repent and hear the good news. And I blend that with, kind of merge it with the uh, Old Testament text on the preaching of Jonah uh, in Nineveh. And uh, and so it's kind of a fascinating thing. And then I'll, and then we'll, uh, to end the week off totally, we'll have a, a good sermon by Pastor Jeremy Rohde on the same Jonah text that I wove into my sermon as well. So you can kind of get the idea there. And so, in fact, this is kind of a week where you can, you're going to get a lot of Jonah. That's probably the best way to put it, Compare, you know, considering the fact that I, if on the uh, Wednesday episode we played my uh, Roseboro's Ramblings through Genesis, I actually read through the entire book of Jonah in that segment. So you, you kind of reiterate and reinforce some things here, engaging in what's called the hermeneutical spiral. So without any further ado, we're going to have to get to it because we have got a lot of ground to cover. And since we're doing a Heidi Baker update, that requires us to do this. So I was having this wedding, and and we we well we didn't have we shava shava shanda yeah 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 shava oh shava shava wow shava Monday. All right, yeah. Every time I hear that, that cracks me up. So what we're going to be listening to is Heidi Baker on her um, appearance at, well, on Matt Sorger's um, television program. And uh, I guess he interviewed her after some, you know, signs and wonders conference. And, uh, well, it's just rather enlightening. And this is this is an example of strange fire. This is not a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This is not a Holy Spirit at all. Maybe a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. But here is Matt Sorger and uh, Heidi Baker. Here we go. Yeah, that singing is actually Heidi Baker at the Glory Signs and Wonders Conference put on by Matt Sorger. Here's my perfume. Maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know what this is. Prophetic opera? I'm not sure. A pleasing smell. I want to smell like Jesus. What? You want, to, you want to smell like Jesus. Apparently, Jesus has some kind of a perfume that he's uh, out there uh, selling. We continue. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Draw. Now, so here they are in a room uh, just sitting in, you know, sofas, and uh, and she's looks like she's baking in the glory. And draw them up. Draw them in, Lord. Shandai, draw them up and draw them in, Lord. Into your heart, Jesus. So close into your heart, Jesus. Whoa, they're so Shandai released, Lord, in this place of radical love, Lord Jesus. Radical love, God. 
call your people. Why would the Holy Spirit cause you to have this these kinds of Tourette like Tourette's like outbreaks? I I don't see this as the Holy Spirit. Ones who love you, God, would you kiss your people today, Jesus? Would you kiss them, Lord? Hey, would you wake up, sleep, shun thy sleeping beauty with a kiss? Would <laughs> I always get a little creeped out when, you know, when mystics start talking about Jesus in terms that start crossing the line from agape love into eros love. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Mysticism has this this theme in it that uh, always kind of ends up in the erotic love category. And, it, you know, again, Jesus is not my bearded girlfriend. So, you know, I just want to put that out there. Wake up, sleeping beauty, your bride with a kiss, and draw her into the intimate places of your love, that there would be fruit all over the world, that no one could resist your beauty, Jesus. Okay, oh boy. Yeah, like I said, this is clearly crossed the line into the eros love rather than agape. Oh, man. Lord, that is my prayer, God. That is my prayer, Jesus. That is my prayer, sweet, 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 Holy Spirit. Hey, this has been the hardest 18 months of my entire life. I've been, it's been the hardest time. There have been pastors martyred. What is Matt Sorger doing? Sounds like he's doing Lamaze breathing. (laughs) What is going on here? Tens of thousands of people's homes wiped out in the floods. Just devastation. All kinds of sickness, slander, disease. Um, All these things have come against us. You know, floods and cyclones and starvation and pain. And Mm. beyond what I could describe to you, Shabba. But as I focused on his face, as Mm. I focused on the face of Jesus, Jesus, he said, Heidi... I want you Jesus. to count it all joy. Jesus. I want you to count it all joy, whatever it is Jesus. you go through. I want you to count it joy. I want you to. Here he goes again. I I, I think Matt Sorger's giving birth to something. He's doing the Lamaze breathing thing. Fix your eyes, Shaba, because he said it was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. Wow. I'm not a fluffy, puffy minister. I'm not just. People think you- fluffy puffy. Yeah, those are not terms I would use for you. Wacky quacky. Yeah, those are two words I would use for you. And I'd minister. No, wacky and quacky. Yes. Just snockered all the time. I know what it is to give my life, and I know what it is to give it every day, and I know what it is to face darkness and death and starvation and look into the face of famine and laugh because my God's big enough. And if he says, feed 100,000, it's like, yes, God. You know, he said, he'll say anything, and you just say yes. So I'm not talking some fluffy, puffy, whatever. I'm talking about... Right, you're talking wacky, quacky. Christianity 101. Yeah. You know, yeah. hey, it's staying in the presence it's and all, loving him. That's what we need to oh. get back to. Yeah, Christ- we just need to get back to the presence, man. Whoa, yeah, whoa, Shabba. 101, <laughs> it's the foundation. Yeah. I don't... Oh, man. 
This sounds like two people who are strung out on drugs trying to have a coherent conversation, and they can't. And that's about as far as I can handle Heidi Baker. I can only take her in small doses, and even then, you know, it's it's uh, pushing the limits. But uh, moving along, time for some email. Back off in the music here. Now, we're going to start off with an email from Matthew. I do not know where Matthew is from now. So when you email me, if you uh, hope to have me answer something on the air, let me know what part of the world you're in. And now we have a policy here at Fighting for the Faith. If you don't tell me where you're from, well, then I assign a place for you somewhere on the planet. So uh, Matthew is from Krakow in Poland. And um, Matthew writes, he says, um, uh, Pastor Rosebro, uh, regarding Heibel's message, do you think... It is too far of a stretch to say that he was dangerously close to crossing the word of faith line in the sand when he continued to stress how a single word or words on a calendar could change lives. Great question, by the way. He says, at the end of the sermon, he provided several testimonies of lives changed, accrediting the change to the words they wrote down in their calendar. Yeah, you know, Matt, you got a great point. And uh, I would say, you know, I would say it's something like that. In fact, for years I've I've thought that the uh, seeker-driven church is the word of faith heresy light, kind of like, you know, not the crass version of it, rather than saying you're going to have, um, you know, private jets and mansions and Mercedes Benzes and Bentleys, which is kind of the crass version of it. Instead, the seeker-driven movement, uh, it has the light version of that word of faith heresy where God is going to basically make you successful in a kind of a suburban middle-class kind of way. And so, and what we saw that with, uh, with Bill Hybels, but you're right. He attributed the power for the changed lives to the single word written down in a calendar and that is very akin to the uh, Word of Faith heresy. Great point there. Uh, Rose writes from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She says this. He, um, he, I understand that you, uh, all that you say regarding Christians not being under the Mosaic Covenant, but what I need to understand in order uh, to one day answer this anticipated question is this. If we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, how then do we draw out the Ten Commandments or the moral law that was given to Moses as being applicable to us today. Was it not part of the Mosaic Covenant too? Now, the answer to the question is yes, but you also can see in uh, the story of the patriarchs that the uh, the moral law precedes the giving of the moral law in the Ten Commandments. You know, For instance, I would point you to the story of Joseph. In the story of Joseph, you can see that even before Mount Sinai, he did not believe it was right. In fact, he thought it was sinful against God to sleep with Pharaoh's, not Pharaoh's, but Potiphar's wife. So when she was making advances on him, he would not give in to that evil thing. And so in the lives of the patriarchs, you'll see it's as if they have the law written on their hearts, and they do. And so the the moral law, the moral aspect of the Mosaic Covenant predates uh, the, um, the, uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And uh, as Christians, then, we understand this, is that, um, you know, kind of a convenient way of looking at God's Word or the Mosaic Covenant is that scholars have for years understood that there's kind of three aspects to the, uh, to the Mosaic Covenant. There is the moral law. There are civil laws that pertain really only to Israel in that time and place in history. 
And then there are ceremonial laws. All of those are type and shadow that point us to the the, uh, crucifixion and sacrifice of Christ for our sins. So all of the sacrifices that take place at the temple, those are all ceremonial. All of the the, uh, feast days, those are ceremonial. And ironically, the Sabbath itself is ceremonial. And uh, Hebrews 4 kind of makes that point clear that the uh, the uh, Sabbath day, the S- Sabbath rest, was actually pointing us to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And so, but the other commandments then, they they get picked up then in the, uh, in the New Covenant. <clears throat> Let me give you an example of where that happens. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter 13, Romans 13, let me see here. Let me pull this up. I thought I had this up before, but uh, no, here, here's what he says. Uh, Paul writes, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves uh, another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you do not covet, uh, you shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this one, in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides, you know this uh, besides this, you know the time for the uh, of the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. So the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light and let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. So the idea then is is that the the moral aspect of the law is written on our hearts. It predates the uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and continues on to do its work of convicting us of our sin. That's right. The law it you know, still continues to its accusing work and shows us what sin is. And for Christians, it shows us what God's will is for us, and that's why it's referred to as the law of perfect. Freedom. So you keep in mind, in the New Covenant, slavery is sin. Sin is slavery. That's the way that works. Freedom is loving God and loving neighbor. That's freedom. So we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And as a result of it, we do not walk in sin. And instead, when the law convicts us of our sin, the moral law pointing to the sins that we commit, we say, yes, Lord, that is a sin. I repent. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Or as John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the moral law, which predates the Mosaic Covenant, continues on to instruct us, to accuse us of our sin, show us our need for a Savior, and gives us the roadmap of what it looks like to walk out in freedom. But uh, And that's the that's the aspect that, that, that continues to be referenced in the new covenant in in the new testament you know we we see the moral laws you know continue to do its killing work and showing us what god's will is for us uh but the civil and ceremonial laws no longer are binding so that's a good way to talk about it and a good way to to look at those things it's a little bit simplistic but still it uh, it gets to the point okay 
I think we have time for one more email and then we'll take a break. Uh, uh, this is from uh, Betty, and she's uh, uh, she is from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I didn't make that up. She actually told me that. Uh, she says, Chris, I listen to your program, and I'm a retired nurse of twelve uh, tw- uh, two years, and I spend a large part of my day either studying scripture and listening and learning about false teachers. I'm studying Second Kings, and I'm up to uh, chapter 17, where Israel is lost to Assyria. The, uh, they lost... Uh, the kingdom of Israel due to idolatry. Now, my question is because you always say you cannot apply the situation to your life. He is uh, he's talking to the Jews. Okay, because we are in the same boat as is, uh, as Israel uh, was then abortion, immorality, etc. Can we not expect the same for our country? We have idols and don't follow God's commandments and statutes. Or is grace covering all of this until he comes back? Thank you, uh, Betty uh, DeCourt from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, now this is where um, we need to make something clear here. And that is is that over and again, what I'm, what I'm harping on is the seeker-driven proclivity to narsajit. And that is to read themselves into every biblical text and somehow make themselves the heroes of the story rather than Christ. You know that you can't do that. That's a that's a hermeneutical no-no. But that is not to say that the Old Testament stories do not have something to inform us about. And let me explain what I mean by that with a biblical text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, verses 1 through 12 will help us out in this. And here's what it says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, uh, uh, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall." So here's the idea, is that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 informs us that these stories were written specifically, if you would, as as warnings against sinful behavior. See how God punishes. And so we don't want to put God to the test. We do not want to engage in idolatry. We do not want to engage in sexual immorality because look what God has done how he punishes sin. And so there is a you know you'll notice here that the way Paul is looking at those stories is that he's showing us by bad example these these uh, texts are showing us by bad example the consequences of sin. So it's still uh, basically forming an accusing function within these things. So coming back then to your email, can we look at what happened to Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17 where Israel is lost to Assyria and say, does this apply to the United States? Now the answer is yes and no. And what I mean by that is we don't have a prophet here today telling you know America, you know, 40 days until America is overthrown. No, no, that's not it at all. But we can say this, look at the evil that's going on in the world. 
Look at uh, how the culture is continuing to get worse. The job of, a, of the Christian, and this is not just the job of a pastor. Keep in mind, pastors are given the job of preaching the word in church. Christians, all Christians, have the responsibility of proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So we are salt and light to the culture, and we must call the culture to repent and to be forgiven by Christ's shed blood. And the idea is this, when we look in Scripture, we look at God's pattern that when a, when a people become so evil and so wanton, that God eventually says enough is enough, and he punishes. Now, we do not have the authority to say God's going to punish tomorrow or anything like this, but we can say, listen, pay attention. We can see how God be, you know, how God punishes sin. Don't think that he's not paying attention to what, he, you know, to what you're doing here. You all need to repent. So this gives us the impetus to do a couple of things. Number one, keep our own sin in check because we see that God takes sin seriously. And number two, take the the great commission seriously and get out there and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins because ultimately remember Hebrews 11 says that without faith it's impossible to please God so it's not enough that a society you know curb its evil okay um you know and 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 basically do a cosmetic job on sin it cuz ultimately just behavior modification doesn't address the first table the first table is you will have no other gods before me and that requires us to be have penitent faith in the one true God. So we as Christians, all of us are to tell the culture, people who are non-Christians, there is a God in heaven above. He takes sin seriously, repent, and be forgiven because Christ has bled and died for your sins. So this gives us the right way of kind of understanding these things. So you'll notice here that narcissistic eisegesis, uh, when uh, these guys in the seeker-driven movement twist God's word, they do so in a way where they're not convicting people of their sin and showing the, these bad examples. Instead, what they're looking for are they're always kind of strip mining for the hero, and then you become the hero. But ultimately, the heroes in all of the Old Testament texts point us to Jesus. The sinners in all the Old Testament texts, well, they they point us to, well, how we all are. And I think that's a sound way to look at those. So it's not like they don't serve a function. They do, but you have to be careful you know, to use the biblical kind of guidelines and how to rightly use those texts. I hope that answers your question, Betty. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll continue with email and then end off the hour by taking a look at what's going on with evangelical churches, specifically Eastlake Church, as they embrace homosexuality. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church.
Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler. Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about the Bowflex Max Trainer. Now, if you're like me and you want to stay fit and you want to exercise and keep active, uh, but you don't have hours to dedicate going to the gym, well, consider the Bowflex Max Trainer. I've been able to use this piece of equipment over the last nine weeks, and I've been consistently able to lose a pound a week on the Bowflex Max Trainer. And some days I was only able to exercise for 14 minutes. Yeah, that's right. There's a 14-minute workout on this thing that will leave you dripping with sweat. It uses uh, interval training to kind of boost your metabolism up, and the afterburn effect on this thing is actually quite amazing. So if you'd like more information about the Bowflex Max Trainer, visit fightingforthefaith.com, and along the side, you'll see an advertisement for the Bowflex there on our website. Click on that, head on over to the Bowflex site, and check out the information regarding the Bowflex Max Trainer trainer. It has been a fantastic piece of equipment for me, and I'm hoping that if you're looking for a piece of equipment that will work for you and you have limited time, this will help meet those needs. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Bowflex ad and get your Max Trainer today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. That's just the reality here. That's not a throwaway line. That's a real possibility. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. 
When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a good way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we're going to continue with our uh, email segment here. I've got an email from David in Yuma, Arizona, and here's what he says. My wife, uh, who also has a Bible college degree, uh, typically loathes attending and participating in women's Bible studies, but she attends quite a few in order that to be a part of the life and body of the church as well as to develop discipling relationships with other women. This said, she typically enjoys Beth Moore's studies, claiming that she's, quote, better than most, unquote, uh, women teachers. However, after uh, listening, after to listening to her, uh, bizarre allegorizing of the Old Testament and claims to have received direct revelation from God on your program, I'm fairly convinced that she and many other women teachers who adopt her style... Uh, should not be endorsed or promoted in our churches. I've shared this perspective with my wife and other women who tend to disagree, my wife less than other women, and continue to believe that Beth Moore is a fine Bible teacher and, more importantly, a key role model for women with teaching gifts. I disagree, of course. But what I want to know is if you can cite any examples of faithful, sound female Bible teachers who also submit to the New Testament restrictions on the context in which a woman may teach, who faithfully exegete and write Bible studies. If not Beth Moore, are there any other women who you would recommend uh, women use in small group studies or invite to their uh, to their conferences? Is there a John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul of women teachers who you would recommend? Now, that's kind of a good question. Um, I got to tell you, I'm I'm not a fan of of this idea that somehow women have to be taught by women. This is this is a a thing that kind of grinds my gears. But that being said, I I did want to take a look at a, a text real quick to you know throw something into the mix. Although this doesn't isn't exactly addressed by your email, I wanted to bring this up so that people understand something. You had talked about the right context in which women can teach. And by the way, this is the important thing, is that women can teach. In fact, we have an example of a woman teaching in the book of Acts. Let me give you the example. It's Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 24. Here's what it says. Now, a new a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So you'll see here an example of a woman teaching a man in Scripture. But notice it doesn't take place in the context of the gathering of the church. This is not during the preaching time. So women can teach. Priscilla is uh, noted here in Scripture as somebody who can accurately teach the Scripture and even correct it a man. So women can do that. So we have to keep that in mind. But where it crosses the line is when the church gathers you know, for a service, uh, a woman getting up and preaching and teaching. Yeah, that's that. And, and exercising authority over men in that sense is, yeah, and that's not... Uh, allowed in scripture. So that being the case, 
um, we, I think you, we need to keep an eye on where the biblical lines are, so to speak. Um, I don't really know. I, I just really don't know any women teachers that uh, that we can readily point to. Now, I, I there is a uh, my friend Erin Benziger. I know she's working on a project called Equipping Eve, and I think you, uh, you need to contact her through the Do Not Be Surprised. Uh, 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 blog and you know Aaron Benziger is her name. I would also point you to uh, Lisa Cooper. Uh, she's the wife of Jordan Cooper of the Justin Sinner program that airs here on Pirate Christian Radio. And I would contact both of them to see if there are any good you know study materials put out by women that rightly handle God's word properly distinguish between law and gospel and the woman doesn't cross the line and in, in, into mysticism or direct revelations and and engage in narcissistic eisegesis like Beth Moore and, and people like that and see what they say and uh, I would if in fact if you after contacting them see what they recommend I would love to hear back from you so that we may be able to point people to these uh, resources because quite frankly I'm just not familiar with them. Okay, last email comes to us from Robin from Southeast Iowa. And here's what she says. Uh, My question is about the fruits spoken of in Galatians 5, verse 22. In verse 18, it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then it goes on to talk about the deeds of the flesh versus the fruits of the Spirit. It would help in determining the assurance of one's salvation. Would would help in determining the assurance of our salvation be our continued or growing desire to walk in this way. In other words, when we know that we hate our sin and desire to be like Christ and turn to him for forgiveness, is that is this a good indication of our regeneration? So the question has to do with assurance of salvation. I'll tell you the the the, the trick here, Robin, and that is is that as a Christian who's been in the faith all my life, I can tell you definitively there are seasons in the Christian faith where you seem to have, you know, you are walking tightly with the Lord. You are you are rejoicing in hearing His word, and um, and if for whatever reason, you know, it seems like you know you've you've got the upper hand over your sin. And then there are dark seasons where it seems like the devil has got the best of you, and um, you look at your own life, and it's. You don't see the fruit so well. And this is where it's difficult from our perspective because we have both a sinful nature and the regenerate nature that was given to us when we were brought to penitent faith in Christ, and they're warring with each other. And so even the Apostle Paul in in Romans chapter 7 says this, the things I uh, don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of death, he says. And then Paul, near the end of his life, says that uh, the, the one thing is certain, that he's the chief of sinners. And so the Christian life is really one that's rather interesting because the closer you get to God, and I mean that in this side of uh, the resurrection, the more in-depth you understand Scripture and the more you understand the magnitude of your own sin as Scripture informs you regarding the depth and seriousness and magnitude of your sin, the Christian life oftentimes feels like the longer you walk with the Lord, the more sinful you feel subjectively. And so the idea is is that we don't want to look for the assurance of our salvation in our subjective feelings because this this type of checking our fruits to see if this is uh, if if I'm in the faith or not some days you might say well yeah it sure does seem like it and other days you're going to say no 
And so the problem is, is that if that becomes the sign of the assurance of your salvation and it's subjective, then you're literally putting yourself in a situation where you're going to be tossed back and forth by your own feelings and experiences. And that's not what determines the assurance of our salvation. Sure, in one sense, you look to these things and, you know, and ask, you know, are you wrestling with your sinful nature? Um, and, and, you know, because that's what we do as Christians. But there are times when you're going to do that well, and there's times when you're not going to do it well at all. And so we need something objective outside of ourselves to point to that our faith can hang on to that isn't dependent upon a subjective thermostat and where it's set to, but it's something objective. And this is why Lutherans point to the means of grace. Uh, they, they point to the absolution. They point to the Lord's Supper. They point to baptism as things to anchor it, that are outside of yourself for the assurance of your salvation. Robin, I hope that answers your question. Okay, moving along. I got to tell you, I debated long and hard about uh, what we're going to be doing for our update music for this uh, segment of Fighting for the Faith. And I, I made a decision that might seem kind of harsh, but I think it actually fits the bill. We're going to be playing our Emergent Church update music for this next segment uh, regarding an evangelical church, which really, for the most part, sounds exactly like an emergent church now, um, and uh, their decision to affirm LGBTQ uh, you know, people as Christians. Uh, but uh, before we do that, let's play our update music. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra conducted by Doug Paget of the Emergent Church Movement. Now, you'll notice that they don't sound like any orchestra that you've ever heard before. And the reason why is because, well, they're not limited by specific definitions of notes. Instead, they are being led by the Spirit and letting the Spirit guide them as they uh, play this wonderful rendition of Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra, which is, by the way, is an homage to the uh, philosophical writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. Listen in to this crescendo here. Ah, can't you just feel the spirit? This is avant-garde, tour de force. This is sticking it to the modernist dude that says you have to have specific definitions for words and notes and things like that. We're now freed by the winds of the spirit. Yeah, there we go. So what we're going to be listening to is uh, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Ryan from East Lake Church in Bothell, Washington, who was written about in Time Magazine's their latest article where they're talking about evangelicals kind of making the switch, you know, in their thinking regarding LGBTQ, you know, all that alphabet soup, LGBTQs and and uh, homosexuality. And I want you to listen carefully to what he said to his congregation as he explained his involvement with this, with Time Magazine, and how he came to the conclusions that he came. We'll comment along the way. Yeah, words apparently don't mean things, and that's kind of the postmodern way of doing things. Here we go. Here's Pastor Ryan from East Lake Church. Well, hey, everybody. Glad you're here. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at East Lake. I know many of you might be aware that an article came out uh, in Time Magazine that included testimony from me and our church's journey from a, a pastoral leadership team position 
on our desire to pursue full inclusion for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered people, our brothers and sisters who often have been cast out of the church. But five years ago, the journey really began for me as I started to look back into something that for me had been a closed conversation. I thought I had the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth when it came to these questions. But because those of you who have been around East Lake know, I've always been a pursuer of truth, no matter where it leads me, no matter what it costs me. I feel like a move of the Spirit pressed me to once again consider what I previously had thought had been settled. One of the Okay, now, notice what he said there. The, he claims that he came to this conclusion. Well, number one, he's always seeking the truth, but this is based upon a move of the Spirit. So we're playing the prophecy card here. And I want to make a point here. If you're familiar with the arguments that were used by the ELCA and other mainline denominations to recognize same-sex marriage and then ultimately to ordain practicing impenitent sexually immoral men and women who whose sexual immorality is with people of the same sex as them. And notice how I phrase that, that they were saying that this is the new wind of the Spirit. This is the thing that the Spirit is doing. So Pastor Ryan over there at East Lake Church basically is saying this, and I have to translate it for you. I was led to this conclusion by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, and this is the underlying subtext, if you disagree with me, you are disagreeing with the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one behind all of this. God is the Holy, the Holy Spirit is the one behind all the changes we're making in our thinking regarding LGBTQ, you know, what, that alphabet soup is so difficult, you know, but, uh, regarding homosexuality. And if you're not in line with us, well, then you're just not in tune with what the Spirit is really all about. That is basically, it's blasphemy. I'll be blunt, it's blasphemy. That is basically saying that God the Holy Spirit lies. God the Holy Spirit, where God says, I am the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, that he lies. That, uh, uh, you know, at one time, you know, he said that homosexuality is a sin and it's sexual immorality. And now this new thing that he's doing is, you know, he wants to have, you know, same-sex marriage and homosexuals recognized and embraced and celebrated in the Christian church. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. Because scripture on this is actually extremely clear. It's not even vague. It is ridiculously clear. So if we're to take this argument at face value, here's, here's what it basically boils down to. The Bible is wrong. Yeah, it, the Bible's wrong. And two millennia of Christians regarding homosexual sexual immorality, they were also wrong. And the reason why they were wrong is because they didn't rightly understand what God's Word taught. But now in the 21st century, we, by a new move of the Spirit, have actually figured out what God the Holy Spirit says in His Word. And we, we, unlike two millennia of Christians, we finally have figured out what the Bible really means. And here's what it means. The Bible means the exact opposite of what it actually says. That's basically what it boils down to. 
And this is what he's doing here by saying he came to this conclusion by a move of the Spirit. The Spirit prompted him and led them to, to this. He is taking God's name in vain. This is what it means to break that commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He is hijacking the Spirit and making the, the Spirit the authority and the heavy behind his move. Now, what we're going to listen to next in this is a little bit farther into his sermon where he starts to twist God's word. And the way he twists it is rather fascinating because it's kind of a spin off of of the argument regarding the Torah and the Christians being no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. But see, he doesn't make a distinction between the moral law, civil law, and ceremonial laws. In fact, what he's basically doing is is engaging in a very bad hermeneutic, the, the conclusion of which is antinomianism. And I'll explain it as we go. But uh, here again is Pastor Ryan from Eastlake. One of the things that I've been reflecting on often in this process has been the story that's recorded for us in the New Testament of the Apostle Peter, who roughly 10 years after the resurrection is praying on a rooftop in Joppa. And he has a vision and depending on your translation, uh, a trance. But if that scares you, just switch your translation and you can find something much more palatable. But something. That long story short, he realizes as God begins to reveal to him, actually call him to do something that his sacred text told him not to do, that forbid him to do it, to enter the home uh, of a Gentile, to associate with such people. And the- now, I want to make something clear. The Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, always prophesied that there would be an ingathering of the Gentiles. And you think of the blessing of Abraham, through you all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed. The promise of Abraham, you know, of the blessing of Abraham, that would be that through his seed, that would be Jesus, all nations of the earth would be blessed. So what he's saying does not actually correctly um, summarize what the Mosaic or what, what the Old Testament teaches regarding Gentiles. So that's kind of twist number one. But we continue. The communication of God is do not call unclean what I have called clean. And so Peter leaves and he meets with the church. And he says, I now see that God shows no favoritism, but he accepts everyone who does what is right and fears the Lord. And it just struck me how often I can read that story and have it not impact me. Where the gravity of what has changed in human history through Jesus and through specifically this moment, this trance, this vision that Peter has, has literally transformed the Western world, if not the world itself, as a non-Jew or Gentile myself, and I'm guessing many of you. Now notice something. The text he's talking about is found in Acts chapter 10, the story of uh, Cornelius, the centurion, who was a God-fearer, who was converting to Judaism. That's what a God-fearer is, somebody who's actually studying to become a Jew, and hasn't been circumcised, and God tells Peter to go and meet with him and preach the gospel to him, and he does, and they receive the Holy Spirit even before they're baptized, and that's what Peter was referencing in Acts 15, which we read yesterday. You know, the conversion of uh, of Cornelius and his household, how they received the Holy Spirit even before they were baptized, and God showing that he made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
That was the important theological point. Now, here's the question I have for you. Is this a text about the status of people who are homosexuals? The answer is no. To equate a homosexual with a Gentile is to miss the whole point altogether, and it's to avoid the clear biblical text. So the idea is sound biblical hermeneutics requires you to deal with a text that deals with a topic in context. So the idea here is is that uh, we would take a look at uh, a passage like you know regarding homosexuality from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, which says, hang on a second, I've got to pull this up. Um, here's what Paul writes. And in, in notice, remember, Paul, this is a guy who knows uh, the Judaizers well. This is a guy who was the staunchest critic of the Pharisaical Judaizers who were coming in and binding people and trying to keep Gentiles out or cause Gentiles to convert to Judaism before they became Christians and require them to be circumcised. This is what he writes. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So over and again, you will see in Scripture that those who are Christians, both Jew and Gentile, are called not to make you know, God, take Christ's death on the cross and turn it into a license for sin, but instead to mortify their sinful flesh. They are to flee sexual immorality, and they are not to engage in sexual immorality. And that's what homosexuality is. The category it falls under in Scripture is the category of sexual immorality. There is just no way around this. This is absolutely the case. So what Ryan here is doing, he's he's basically equating the Jew-Gentile distinction that was made, that should not have been made, that was corrected by God, as the distinction that somehow that needs to be overcome now between heterosexuals who are Christians and homosexuals who claim to be Christians. The problem is this, is that all sexual is people who are sexually immoral, whether their sexual immorality errs in heterosexual sins or homosexual sins, all are called to repent and to be forgiven, and we are not we are not to offer our bodies as instruments to unrighteousness. Instead, we are to daily and you know penitently repent, be forgiven, and not not indulge in our sinful nature. When we fall short, we confess our sins and we are forgiven. But everybody who is a Christian is on the same level, penitent, sinner, saved totally by grace through faith. And what Ryan is doing is basically gutting the gospel. But we'll we'll, we'll deal with a few more of the implications of what it is he's saying here in a minute. Let, Let him continue. We're all in on a vision. Peter didn't return with Torah to quote. Yeah, no, actually, we're all in because God already said in the Old Testament many times that he would gather the Gentiles in as well. And notice what he said here. Let me back it up so you can hear it again. Watch what he says. Peter didn't return with Torah to quote. 
yeah, you see, again, you're not making a proper distinction between the moral law, the civil and ceremonial. No, you're not making that proper distinction at all. And again, the moral law precedes precedes the uh, the Mount Sinai. How do we know this? Look again at the uh, patriarchs and how sins were, you know, were seen as that sins even before the 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 law was given on Mount Sinai. So we got a, we got a real problem here. And so he's saying, well, he didn't come back with Torah. See, so apparently the only way you can call out someone's sexual immorality is with the Torah. Well, let's let's change the subject a little bit here. Okay, let's not talk about LGBTQ QT people, or, you know, I can't do the alphabet suit, but you get the point. This does not make this about, um, you know, a homosexual sin. Let's talk about the guy who is uh, cheating on his wife. Yep, that's a sexual sin, is it not? Yep. Well, by this logic, Peter didn't come back with Torah, right? Well, by this logic, we can't call the guy who's, who's cheating on his wife, uh, call him to repent. We can't. Because you know, and we can't exclude him from our church. We can't exclude him from being a pastor. We can't exclude him from teaching Bible study. We can't exclude him from you know full participation in church and you know from this you know from the Lord's Supper or anything. No, we can't exclude him because again, Peter didn't come back with Torah, man. So you know, just take his argument and change the subject from somebody whose sexual immorality is with with somebody of the same sex. And just change the subject to sexual immorality of a different kind, a different stripe. A guy who's uh, cheating on his wife, a woman who's cheating on her husband, a guy who's uh, looking at child porn. You know, start naming the sins. You know, bestiality. Start plugging all the different types of sexual immorality here. Some guy who's sleeping with his sister. You know, just start naming it off the list. Well, Peter didn't return with Torah, so we can't exclude them, can we? Yeah, see, this this is not a biblical argument at all. And yet this guy said that he was going to follow truth wherever it led him and then claim that the Spirit is who led him to this. No, this shows that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was not at the heart of who was prompting him to go this way. Listen again. Peter didn't return with Torah, to quote. Instead, he returns with something that in many ways countermands his own sacred texts. And so even 10 years after the resurrection, the church is still debating, do people have to become Jewish and obey the Mosaic law in order to follow Jesus? And everything changes. And so I'm guessing for the most of us non-Jews, as Gentiles, as adopted Gentiles, I wonder how it is that we, the adopted Gentiles, so often enter and then close the circle behind us. Yeah, see, we haven't closed the circle behind us. We haven't. We're just acknowledging what God's Word says. The one, See, the thing is, is that the one who persists in sin and refuses to say that it's sinful is somebody who doesn't understand, who, whose God's law has not done its work with. They are, they are hardening their heart against what God's law says. The only people who are truly Christians are those who understand that they are sinners, that they are sinners who fall short and they're in need of a Savior and believe that Christ bled and died for them. All Christians are on a level playing field, the level playing field of sinner. For you to sit here and say, well, it's wrong for you to exclude them, the Scriptures tell us to put those who are sexually immoral out of the congregation. That's not Torah. That's New Testament. This is what Scripture tells us to do with those who persist in sin. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said to do. 
When somebody sins, you go to him and you 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 tell them to repent. And if he doesn't repent, you bring two others with you, to, so the testimony can be established by two or more witnesses. If they will still won't repent, then you bring it to the whole church. And if they still won't repent, then you put them out of the congregation and you treat them as a fair as, as a tax collector or or a prostitute. That's what Jesus said to do. And so we've got a real problem here. And that's this, is that what I see Eastlake doing, and they're not the only one mentioned in this Time Magazine article. Grace Point in Nashville is also mentioned, and they've also put a video up on the Time Magazine website of the pastor from Grace Point, basically arguing the same types of arguments uh, for LGBTQ inclusion and recognition of same-sex marriages. And the problem is this, is that these seeker-driven churches are always being driven along by the winds of culture. And the pressure for them to be relevant oftentimes supersedes the pressure given by God, the Holy Spirit, to be faithful to what God's Word says. This is a very dangerous time that we're living in. And I, I really don't—call me pessimistic, and generally I'm an optimist. But, you know, I'm of the opinion that uh, where we're headed in the next 10 years, the majority of these seeker-driven churches will com- completely be squishy or fully embrace— um, the homosexual lifestyle. Why? Because they already don't call out sin and call people to repent and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Their gospel is a different gospel altogether, and they're all about people experiencing life transformation rather than being brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And all of their messages are geared to, you know, have life tips and principles to make your life better. And, you know, they're not into you know, doing what you're supposed to do, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That would include the United States. So, uh, yeah, we've got a big problem. The, uh, what's happening here with these early defectors, I think that's going to open up the dam, and we're going to see a lot more of these uh, seeker-driven churches that are pretty much postmodern emergence functionally, all doing the same thing. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a couple of, well, with at least one good sermon. Yeah, I'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not my sermon was good, but hopefully it's not bad. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with at least one good sermon. That would be Jeremy Rhodes. And I need to point out that Jeremy and I did not talk. It's not like we. It's not like I called up Pastor Rhodes and said, "Hey, Jeremy, uh, what are you preaching on this Sunday?" No, we we both used the same lectionary. And then I said, and "It's not like I called him and said, hey, what are you going to say about Jonah?'" No, we just are both exegetes, and so you'll notice that there's something very similar about what we both say. But let's do this right. Bum, bum, bum. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, uh, the first one comes from me, yours truly, and is entitled The Most Dangerous Sinner of All. And I take two texts and kind of blend them together. The Gospel of Mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 20, which you'll hear me read, as well as Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 and verse 10, which I'll read here in a second. The second sermon comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And the name of the sermon is entitled The Stubbornness of God, and it's delivered by Pastor Jeremy Rohde. And he's also preaching on Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, as well as verse 10. So let me go ahead and back off on the music here. And I need to read to you the, the, the Old Testament text before we uh, get to it, because I'm going to, as part of the recording of my sermon, I actually recorded myself you know, reading the gospel text. But the Old Testament text, which also forms the basis for both sermons, is this, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it uh, the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. All right, this forms the basis for both of the sermons. Sermon number one is myself. Here we go. The name of it is The Most Dangerous Sinner of All. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. 
in the name of Jesus. The text I'll be preaching on this morning is the beginning portion of our gospel text, which reads, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I'd like you to consider for a minute the juxtaposition between our Old Testament text and our gospel text. Our Old Testament text tells the story of Jonah preaching repentance in, you know, to the Ninevites, while our New Testament text tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, in first century Judea, was calling the people of Israel to repent, which kind of begs the question, what on earth did first century Israel have in common with the Assyrians so that they were being called to repent just as the Assyrians of Nineveh had been centuries earlier? We're all familiar with Jonah and the fish story. Now, if you look at merely the surface of things, this doesn't quite make sense. Consider the differences. The Israelis of Jesus' day were religious, while the Assyrians of Nineveh were pagan, idol-worshiping terrorists. Now, I want to give you some idea of just how cruel and brutal the Assyrians of Jonah's day were. In order to do that, I'm going to have to enlist the help of Will and Ariel Durant. They are uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historians and the authors of the you know, multi-volume series entitled The Story of Our Civilization. In volume one, they actually describe the Assyrians. These are the people of Nineveh. And I'm not trying to be over the top. This is just how they were. You need to understand what these people were like. When the Assyrians captured a city, it was usually plundered and burnt to the ground. Its site was deliberately denuded by killing its trees. The loyalty of the troops was secured by dividing a large part of the spoils among them, their bravery ensured by the general rule of the Near East that all captives in war might be enslaved or slain. Soldiers were rewarded for every severed head they brought in from the field so that the aftermath of a victory generally witnessed the wholesale decapitation of fallen foes. Most often, the prisoners who would have, been, who would have consumed much food in a long campaign and would have constituted a danger and a nuisance in the rear were dispatched after the battle. They knelt with their backs to their captors, who beat their heads in with clubs or cut, them, uh, cut off their heads with cutlasses, scribes stood by to count the number of prisoners taken and killed by each soldier and apportioned the booty accordingly. The king, uh, uh, accordingly, the king, if time permitted, presided at the slaughter. The nobles among the defeated, those who were the people of higher standing, they were given more special treatment. Their ears, noses, and hands and feet were sliced off or they were thrown from high towers, or they and their children were beheaded or flayed alive or roasted over a slow fire. And reliefs, you know, stone reliefs at Nineveh show men being impaled or flayed or having their tongues torn out. Impaling, by the way, is an awful way to die. Basically, you take somebody, run a stake through them, and then put the pole up uh, you know, high and just leave their bodies hanging there. It was a very terroristic technique and kind of a precursor of crucifixion. So tongues torn out, one king, one king, uh, one shows a king gouging out the eyes of prisoners with a lance while he holds their heads conveniently in place with a cord that passed through their lips. And uh, that gives you just a 
wonderful picture of what the Ninevites were all about. They were, well, they made ISIS look like a bunch of upstarts. You know what I'm saying? Because you know, ISIS didn't, doesn't quite get their hands as dirty as the Ninevites do. So we all know the story of Jonah and how when the Lord commanded him to go to Nineveh, how Jonah disobeyed, boarded a ship heading for Tarshish, and how Jonah was returned to shore after spending three days in the belly of a large fish. We all know the story. Now, is the reason that Jonah fled because he feared for his life by preaching repentance to the men of Nineveh? Nope. Jonah chapter 4 records Jonah's reaction to Nineveh's repentance that we read in verse 10 of our Old Testament text. And it also reveals the reason why Jonah disobeyed God and headed away from Nineveh. In that chapter, we learn that Jonah, rather than praise the Lord for the revival that took place in Nineveh and rejoice along with the angels who rejoice when sinners are brought to repentance, he didn't rejoice at their repentance. Instead, Jonah was very unhappy that the people of Nineveh had repented and that God had mercy on them. Let me read to you Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than live. So Jonah didn't want to preach repentance in Nineveh because he knew God was merciful and he didn't want those murdering pagan terrorists to be forgiven. Because when you read in your Old Testament, you'll see that Israel and Assyria oftentimes were at war with each other. And when Assyria would get the upper hand, all those things I described the Assyrians doing, they did that to the Jews. So Jonah had a grudge, if you would. So he didn't want those guys to be forgiven. Jonah would have preferred that the Ninevites were punished for their sins, the city of Nineveh overthrown, and its inhabitants thrown into the eternal fires of hell. But, you see, God is merciful. And when he calls people to repent and to turn from their sin, he does so because his desire is to forgive and to pardon and save those whom he has created and loves. So now let's return back to our gospel text. In our gospel text, Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, second person of the Holy Trinity, born of the Virgin Mary, is now an adult. And John the Baptist has been arrested, and Jesus, get this, just like Jonah, is preaching what? He's preaching repentance. But this time, God's messenger is none other than God himself. And this time, the nation that he's preaching to is not a nation of pagan terrorists who torture and impale their victims. Nope. This time, it's a nation that is very religious. Not only is this nation religious, this nation claims to worship the one true God. Yet, Jesus' message to them is the same as Jonah's. His message is repent. This is a mistake, right? No, it's not a mistake. In fact, note how in the book of Jonah, how there's not even a hint that Jonah feared for his life in the preaching to the Assyrians of Nineveh. 
His only fear was that God would forgive them. But Jesus' mission is actually taking him into a region that is far more dangerous than Nineveh because the sinners he's calling to repentance are not merely pagan terrorists. Those are easy to deal with. The sinners he's calling to repentance are religious sinners, those who have all kinds of pious works but inwardly have no faith, no true fear or love or trust in God. Now, how do we know that they don't have faith? Well, if they did, then they would have worshipped Jesus as their God because he is their God, right? Now, to give you an example of just how off these religious sinners are, I would remind you of the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and we'll pick up halfway through the story so as not to belabor the point, and then look at the reaction of the Jews to Jesus raising a man from the dead who'd been dead for four days. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11... Starting at verse 32, we pick up in the middle of the story. It says this. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Or the King James saith, he stinketh, right? Yeah, usually corpses dead for four days sitting in caves don't smell too good, right? There'll be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank, thee, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face, uh, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Wow. Man dead for four days, raised from the grave. You'd think revival would have broken out, right? We've never seen anything like this. Well, listen to the response. John continues. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but... Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what had Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Beware of councils. Beware of councils. No. <laughs> so they gathered the council and they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And this is a bad thing. Why? He just raised a guy from the dead. But listen to their reasoning, okay? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ha, ha, ha. They don't want to lose their power, do they, right? But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And the passage ends this way. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. 
kind of takes that saying, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, kind of to its ultimate thing. But I mean, think about this. Who are the ones leading the charge to put Jesus to death? The religious leaders, the ones who claim that they love and serve and obey God. And there's God in human flesh, raising a guy from the dead who's been dead for four days, and their response is, kill him. Yeah, the Ninevites had nothing on these guys, right? So the God the Pharisees claimed to worship was standing right in front of them. He had just called Lazarus from the grave, and their response, rather than worship and praise, is to make plans to put Jesus to death. So this begs the question, what is going on here? Well, let me give you Jesus' diagnosis from Matthew chapter 23, a rough passage. This is another one of those passages of Scripture that obliterates that idea that Jesus is kind of like that precious moments guy. He's all about making people feel good. This will be rough if you've never read it. Let me read. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. There's an office that they hold, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flaccateries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And no man, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here it comes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, then he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, well, if anyone swears by the altar, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, well, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and, who, and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that outside, that the outside may also be clean. 
And he continues. So this is quite the sermon, right? Yeah, this is not a good church growth sermon, by the way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Like I said, these guys had nothing on the Ninevites. Jesus saw right through their pious performances and called them out for their sins. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus even likened himself to Jonah and even compared the men of Israel of his day to the Assyrian Ninevites. Listen to this from Matthew 12, starting at verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see from you a sign. But he answered them, Well, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, listen to this, the men of Nineveh will, will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That is a grenade of a bombshell. Jesus is in Israel, surrounded by religious people who say they worship the one true God. And he says of those pagan terrorists that they're going to rise on the judgment day forgiven and justified, and they will condemn the religious Jews. Why? Because they repented. These guys are not. The murdering, pagan, idolatrous, Gentile terrorists, they're forgiven and saved by the kind and merciful God of Jonah. Yet, the Pharisees, in their self-righteousness, were so blind to their sin that they refused to believe that they even needed to repent. The men of Nineveh confessed their sins, repented in sackcloth and ashes, and hoped for God's mercy, and they received it. The religious leaders of Israel believed themselves to be righteous because of their obedience to the Torah and the tradition of the elders. In their way of thinking, good, righteous lawkeepers don't need to repent. Yet the very God whom they claimed to worship and obey was the one looking them in the eye and calling them to repent and believe the good news. But rather than confess that their righteousness was nothing more than a religious facade and rubbish, as the Apostle Paul would someday confess about his own righteousness as a Pharisee, and rather than confess that they were sinful just like the prostitutes and the tax collectors and receive God's mercy and forgiveness like the men of Nineveh, the Pharisees instead, like the Assyrians who impaled their victims for all to see, they had Jesus impaled on the cross so that all could see what happens to those who oppose their self-righteous religion of works. But while they were mocking Jesus, while he was bleeding on the cross, and telling him to come down from the cross, Jesus was dying for their sins, and the sins of prostitutes, tax collectors, Assyrian terrorists, drunks, thieves, liars, cheats, murderers, drug addicts, gossips, 
wife beaters, fornicators, homosexuals, abortionists, shady businessmen, crooked politicians, long-winded pastors, and sinners like you. And just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, Jesus died and then emerged victorious from the grave on the third day. Yet, knowing that Jesus had raised bodily from the grave, these Pharisees still would not repent. Which begs the question, are you blind like the Pharisees and self-deceived? If you say you have no sin, the Apostle John writes, you deceive yourself, and like the Pharisees, the truth is not in you. Now, a simple way to know if this is you is if you believe that you are a good person. If you believe that God's going to let you into heaven because of your good deeds and because you believe that your good outweighs your bad or because you came to church regularly or because you read your Bible five days a week or because you voted the right, you know, for the right party's candidates or because you never smoked a cigarette or because you never allowed a curse word to come across your lips. Don't get me wrong for a second. There's nothing wrong with these good works. But you are just like the Pharisees if you believe that a right standing before God is due to your obedience and your good works. This is why the Lord had the Apostle Paul, a man who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, pen these words in Philippians 3. Paul writes, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the Pharisees and the Judaizers. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, then I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all of my good works as a Pharisee. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God that depends on faith. So if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and like the Pharisees, the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, like the men of Nineveh, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Repent, therefore. Repent of your sins. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your religious sinfulness and be forgiven. Your right standing has been established for you by Christ, not by your good works. For Jonah was right. God is gracious. God is compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and a God who relents from calamity, even the calamity of hell. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Sermon number two, Pastor Rody, same text from Jonah, is entitled, The Stubbornness of God. Here we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Follow me, Jesus said. And apparently that was all it took. Simon and Andrew, James and John, they'd known Jesus from before, but now he was calling them to be fishers of men. 
Without hesitation, they dropped their nets, left their boats, and followed. These aren't the first men, men of great faith, who were eager to do whatever the Lord asked. Just last week, we heard of young Samuel, eager to heed God's call. Three times he answered, Here I am! The prophet Isaiah takes his excitement even further. Here I am! Send me! Send me! He says... There's the kind of man who's enthusiastic, ready, and willing to do whatever the Lord asks. And then there's Jonah. Enthusiastic? Are you kidding? Ready? Technically? Willing? Nope. Not even close. When the Lord said to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, Jonah arose, went down to the harbor, and boarded a ship going the opposite way. What should we make of this? Jonah's name means dove, but he acted more like a chicken. At least that's our first impression. After all, the Ninevites were basically the Isis of the ancient world. In fact, worse. The accounts of Assyrian kings read like horror stories, though they mean them as brags. They would use the skin of their enemies for wallpaper. Captured soldiers would have their eyes plucked out, their noses, ears, and genitals removed. Enemy peoples were lined up for mass mutilations where their severed hands and feet would be gathered in piles, and severed heads would be hung from tree limbs like ornaments. Some were burned alive, others were impaled on posts. A monstrous and sickening people these Assyrians were. And Nineveh was their capital. No, Jonah wasn't at all afraid of these lowlifes. He was disgusted by them. The only thing Jonah was afraid of, really, is that God would have mercy on their sorry souls. He'd have no part in that. So when God told him to go, he went the opposite way. Not from cowardice, but from conviction. So it's more than a little strange that of all people, God would choose this man, Jonah, for this job. A preacher whose only response to God's divine call was with his feet as they carried him away. A preacher who, if he were to preach, hoped his words would fall on deaf ears. A preacher who truly wanted every last person in his congregation to burn in hell. That's who God sends to preach in Nineveh we might wonder what on earth God was thinking calling the likes of Jonah. But if the Bible shows us anything, it shows us time and again just what a terrible HR manager God really is. Who does he choose to be the father of the faithful? Abraham the idolater. Who does he send to give new life to Israel? Moses the murderer. Who does he call to be the most prolific preacher of Christ? Paul, the persecutor. It's almost as if God asks himself, who would people think is the worst possible candidate for this job? I'll take him. 
Now, it's not that God was responsible for Jonah being the gospel version of the soup Nazi. No grace for you. It's that God wanted this gospel Nazi and no one else to be the instrument of his grace. Even when Jonah declines the call, God ends up pursuing him literally to the depths of the earth to recruit Jonah for the job that he doesn't want. The church has a terrible history of thinking it knows who God has given up on and what sort of person God would like to use. And true enough, if God were to conduct himself in the ways of human wisdom, he probably would have left Jonah at the bottom of the sea where he belongs. But as Paul writes, God wants nothing at all to do with our kind of wisdom. In fact, he has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame our kind of wisdom. And part of this foolishness of God that he doesn't give up on people he should. If anyone should have been declared unfit for ministry, it was Jonah. If God was up, Jonah was going to go down. Down to Joppa, down into the belly of the ship, down into the blackness of sleep, where we all like to escape. But instead of giving up on Jonah, God pursued him. He sent a storm. Then he sent the captain down to wake Jonah up to face the music. But once more, Jonah was willing to go down. One final way to get away from God. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he told the sailors. And they did. And he sank. Down into the heart of the seas. So deep, Jonah recounts weeds wrapping around his head at the roots of the mountains. All the way down he sank into the watery abyss, to the very gates of death. When, yet again, God pursued his prodigal prophet and sent a great fish to swallow him up. In the depths with Jonah, we meet the God who is more stubborn in his love than we are in our hate. More stubborn in his mercy than we are in our sin. In the depths of baptism, we meet a God who is foolish. Foolish enough to save us, even though we don't deserve it. Foolish enough to save us, even when we don't even want it. And then foolish enough to use us as the instruments of His grace, whether we like it or not. You see, here's an important fact. Even after three days in the belly of the fish, even after this miraculous baptism that saved Jonah, even after the fish vomits him up safely on the shore, if anything would change you, that would change you. But we find that Jonah is the same old Jonah. Sure, he goes and preaches to Nineveh, just as our reading today says. But we aren't told what happens next. After Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents and God relents. But this displeases Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. That's the very next verse. 
And in one of the strangest prayers recorded in Scripture, Jonah proceeds to give God a tongue-lashing for being so damned merciful. Even after the fish, Jonah? Really? That's your prayer? Same old Jonah. And same old God, who seems quite unfazed that even after Jonah's baptism, even after Jonah has become a pastor, Jonah remains the same old incorrigible sinner he always was. But again, God is completely unfazed. For he knows a little something. He knows he's far more stubborn in his mercy than we are in our sin. Maybe God has never called you to preach repentance to a city full of bloodthirsty savages, but I'll bet that God has nonetheless called you into all sorts of circumstances and scenarios in which, quite obviously, you're not the right man for the job. Have you ever wondered why on earth God chooses a man like Jonah to be a preacher of grace? Or a man like you to be a faithful husband? Or a woman with your past to raise children in the way they should go? God calls us into roles and relationships, into jobs, into a life that we're just not cut out for. In fact, it often feels as if God reads our resumes and then sends us into the very things we can't handle. It's a misreading of Scripture to think that it says God won't give you anything more than you can handle. On the contrary, God always and ever gives us precisely what we can't handle. Ask Jonah. Or thumb your, open your Bible to any random page, and as you read, you'll soon realize that this champion of the faith is just another stressed-out sinner, one of many, not up to the task or not willing to do the task that God has called them to. Same as you. You may never be Superman or Supermom, or live up to the boast on your coffee cup, world's greatest dad. You may find marriage and parenthood easy today and more than you can handle tomorrow. You might feel like you really are getting better, like you have all your sins and shortcomings hidden politely out of sight, right up until something shows you that you're the same sinner now as you've always been. Even after God pursued you and saved you, a Jonah-hearted Christian, if there ever was one. And therefore, the most important thing for you to remember is that you, like Jonah, are forgiven. Even when you've headed in the opposite direction. Even when the storm is raging all around you. Even when the waves and breakers of God roll over your head and you're sinking into the depths of your sins, sure to drown at any moment, God is still with you. And He still loves you. We may be stubborn in our sins, but God is even more stubborn in His mercy. And even after your confession is spent, His forgiveness is not, not even close.
Jesus himself speaks of Jonah, the sign of Jonah, he calls it. As Jonah descended into the depths of the sea, so our Lord Jesus has descended into the depths of your sin and misery, deep and shameful though they are. Though he knew no sin, God made him to be your sin for you. As Jonah was swallowed by the fish, so our Lord was swallowed up by the grave. After three days in the belly of the fish, Jonah was spat out. And after three days in the belly of the earth, Jesus came forth too. As it turns out, God is more stubborn even than death. Though your life may be filled with all kinds of uncertainty and doubt, there is one thing that never changes. You have a God who's more stubborn than you. Foolish, you might call him. But he doesn't mind that. In fact, he says so himself. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And there's nothing more foolish than Christ crucified for you. Than the word of the cross that sets you free from all your sins. Though you don't deserve it. Though you don't even want it. Doesn't matter. It has set you free and you are forgiven. And even if, like Jonah, you're so bitter about things you'd rather just die. You will, our Lord says. Come follow me into my death. I will give you life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>